0: from Hong Kong, Chicago and the city of Stoke-on-Trent. This is the Classic Lenses podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 80. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by Johnny Sisson and Perry G. Hello Johnny. Hello. And welcome home Perry. Hello. Welcome back. We've got to start Thank with you Perry. Have, have All you, right. are, you, are you still jet lagged?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm really jet lagged. I got back um, Saturday morning at 4 a.m. Hong Kong time. Wow. Uh, so if I say anything really stupid, then just chalk that down to the jet lag. Or if I'm speaking really slow for some reason, tell me. Tell me, and I'll speed up. Um, but yeah, no, I had a great uh, I had a great two weeks driving across the east coast of Canada, and. Uh, you know it is tough lo- lo- leaving the kind of crisp cool air of the canadian east coast summer <laughs> and coming back to the <clears throat> sort of stifling humid heat of hong kong that's increasingly punctuated by the occasional blast of tear gas
0: and uh, and how about how about you Johnny? is uh, what's what's the are you, have you got stifling heat over there where I, you are or I, uh, uh,
2: I was, well it's been over 70 so for me yeah that's stifling heat um <laughs> But it, uh, no, it's just been it's been hotish and humidish, but not terrible. And it's very gray today and overcast. So it's supposed to rain later today. So I uh, I keep saying I'm going to spend the day developing. We'll see. Maybe if we get this wrapped up quick, I'll do a bunch of developing today. We'll see.
0: And, and for for those that are mildly interested in the, the weather in Stoke-on-Trent at the moment, uh, we're just having a. <laughs> A typical, uh, normal British summer. Um, so it's it's cloudy, it was raining earlier. Uh, we may get some sun and then we'll probably get some more rain later. Um, okay, so before we get going on uh, properly with uh, today's show, I just want to say uh, a thank you to the voodoo child himself, um, Eric Sluice, for being uh, with us last week and looking after Perry's seat for us and doing a great job for us. So uh, thank you, Eric. And actually, this is, also, we're just uh, thanking to Ricardo Bayon as well. So two people that have been keeping Perry's seat warm um, and doing a great job for us. So thank you both. So Perry, you better be good today because <laughs> the people that have been on the last two weeks, <laughs> they, they knocked it out the park again. So, uh, so yeah. yeah. They were good
1: episodes. You know, I, I listened to them. Um, I, I drove like, because my girlfriend doesn't drive. So I drove, like, 3,000 kilometers over the course of our trip. We went from, like, uh, all around Nova Scotia into Prince Edward Island, all around Prince Edward Island into New Brunswick, and then back to Halifax. I realize that's not going to make any sense to people who don't know Canadian geography, but, like, that's basically the entire east coast of Canada. Yeah. uh, Minus Newfoundland. And so I did listen to both episodes, and... I particularly enjoyed your game of uh, what was the question again
3: <laughs> when you were discussing
1: Nigel Cliff's question. And well, then, you guys, for both keeping me entertained. And also, the only time I was yelling at the speakers uh, during both of those episodes was when you were answering that question. I think from some dude on Instagram who was asking you about technology invading photography and the arsenal. you guys all thought he was either talking about the football club or, like, your entire article. (laughs) When I am like, no, guys. He's talking about that stupid ad that everyone gets on Facebook or everyone who has, like, a passing interest in photography where it's some kind of thing that you stick on top of your camera. And it's advertised (laughs) as, like, revolutionary AI that will, like, pick your shutter speed and aperture for you.
2: I think Uh, I probably nasty spammed that thing so many times that they block me so i don't see that anymore <laughs> yeah I, i've looked into it after a couple of people
1: asked me like should i buy this so i clicked on it and, and read what it was and i was like no you shouldn't buy this there's nothing this thing can do that you can't do yourself except maybe like save you some time on their time lapse um oh, it's, it's so stupid
0: i, I am <laughs> assuming it's it was. It, i i've, I've I mean, we, we, we chatted about this, this, this before you did, because you, uh, offline, you told us off, uh, what, what, what it was <laughs> and it was, uh, I, I had seen it and I, it all came back to me. and I, and I dared to look it up you know, because the, the concern is like, you look something like this up and then you're going to be followed around by adverts for it everywhere. And so yeah. I think, I, I think I did it on uh, secret mode or whatever it was so that they wouldn't, wouldn't track it. Um, uh-huh. and I, and I remember now, but so I remember looking at it and so oh, what's it, what is this wonderful thing that's going to help it? And I've read it and I was thinking, I, I I was still none the wiser as to what it what it did. Um, yeah. so, so in the end, I think the reason why I can't remember is because I just blocked it out. Of my head has been a complete and utter irrelevance. So, uh, it looks like I made a good call on that. Yep. Yeah. Sounds like it. Yeah. So, so, so apart from his misunderstanding, uh, or block blocking out for understandable reasons, um, that, that advert. So the, the rest of it was, it wasn't too bad then for you.
1: No, no, no. I, I mean, I was driving and one thing that I don't drive in Hong Kong. So one thing I realized is like listening to podcasts when I'm driving, especially on like a highway where I'm going like 120. um, I, I don't pay as full attention as I do. So I pretty much just enjoy the conversations, uh, for the most part. And I think like. You know, Ricardo is spot on about that Nikkor 105 being like, just fantastic bang for your buck as far as like a telephoto goes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but that lens is, is, it's fantastic, right? And I have two of them. I have the AI version in Nikon F-mount, and I have the LTM version. And I bought the AI one like a decade ago. And I bought the LTM one relatively recently out of gas because it was like, I have to have the lens, it's a sonar. But I swear I've used them like twice.
2: and i don't know i
1: don't know why i have them
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's why i haven't i haven't dipped into anything longer than 50 millimeters yet uh on rangefinder because i'm convinced i'll get obsessed with it and never use it although i do i I do want that 75 actually i want your 75 perry we've talked about this oh yeah sure your stupid black your is it silver or black which offensive which which offensive color is it
1: i'm 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 going to talk about this later on about when I talk about like the new lens that I got, but yeah, it's a silver version. It comes in black and I have a serious like psychological problem with putting a silver lens on a black camera. When, when when that lens is also available in black, I just sit there and go like, I should have bought the black one. I'm an idiot. Like, why did I buy the silver one? Just cause it's cheaper. Like the one I have is mint. It's perfect. Like there's, there's not a blemish on it. Um, but I, I, I've used it once and I just can't bring myself to put it on
3: a camera because
0: it's the wrong color. Uh, well, just a, just a quick on on the – talk about these 105s. Um, in, in, the, in our Facebook group, for the Classic Lenses Podcast Facebook group, there was – actually, there's loads of comments on uh, last week's show. Uh, but there's, there's a whole – uh, thread in itself about the differences between the the, the versions of the uh, the nikon 105 2.5 2. and jp holden um is coming close to begging us to talk about it and uh, which you know, <laughs> we have we have we've talked about it um yeah but, well, we have talked about uh, it but yeah. uh i think i think a, a few of our comments though are spread over different shows um but i think the um the air, the area that I think um, we were encouraged to talk about was the difference in rendering between the uh, the, the later versions and the Sonar versions, and um, and I, th- I think we should we should just at least touch upon that just to just to make make JP Holden a little bit happier. Um, and it's and it's just for for me it's just the difference between any Sonar and any Planar uh, because that's they yeah. they're the two versions that we, that we were talking about and Planars are. Very, very well corrected lenses, uh, and sonars are not as well corrected, and it's that that is ultimately the difference between the two. You get different kinds of aberrations going on with the uh, with, with sonars. They, they they're harder to correct. They do stranger things with the with the outer focus areas in in, in a shot, and it's it's those stranger things are the things that. Are pretty much what what drawers us to use in those kinds of lenses because planar designs are closer to modern designs. In fact, I'd probably say the most most lenses of ultimately based off planars are you know, the really really high quality ones. Um, actually, I'm not entirely sure now if the if these like Zeiss Otus things are, are truly planars. But we've had this discussion before now where we think, well, when is a sonar still a sonar? And uh, when we had Jason Lane on there. Um, he was saying, well, it's ultimately like the roots of the design of the lens. The fact that you've got more op more elements in the lens doesn't mean it's not related to the design that it came from. So which is fair enough. But yeah, plain plain are just close <laughs> closer to being to perfection. Um and so Oh Simon. Have you lost? Um, me? Oh man, that was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh yeah.
2: Agree with everything you said there, Simon.
0: <laughs> did, did something did something get horribly wrong there?
2: <laughs> we, we caught the first five seconds of what you said and the last two seconds.
1: <laughs> yeah, and your audio dropped out. We could still hear each other. And, and, all, and all we said during that whole time, was uh, that was boring anyway? And then, you, <laughs> and then you came back with the tail end. Of it.
0: Okay, well, um well, then, well that's that's for, for uh, there you go, JP Holden. I hope I've given you the yeah, the, the full and con- concise answer, which I won't repeat that one again now. Um, we'll we'll put, um, we'll it's, find this. Well, uh, I'll look for the sonar episode and put a
2: link to it in the notes for this episode's podcast. Oh. Then you can go back.
1: Yeah, as long as Simon still has the recording of his audio, I mean, the only thing I want to add, and like, stop me if you said this already, is I, I don't think the AI and AIS versions are technically double, um, like planar designs. They're not double Gausses. Um, yeah. but yeah, the difference is the same, right? The, the AI I, and AIS.
0: I thought they were. Double, I thought they were double Gauss.
1: No, if you look at a diagram, they're, they're not double Gausses.
0: What's all they then? They're
1: they're. They're their own thing.
0: But they they, they have
1: the same kind of qualities. Um like the the AI and AIS are sharper. The sonar is nicer looking. Um yeah, that's my take on it.
0: Uh, this you're just rocking my world at the moment. I, I don't know if I can let this one go. Um all right, hold on.
2: Let's just yeah, Google this here it lens yeah. diagram. Lens diagram googling. Yeah. <laughs> I like on AF 105 lens
0: diagram. All right. Let's see what we get. You keep on talking, Perry.
2: Well, I'm, this I'm is, doing This is like that time well. when Simon's audio dropped out and, <laughs> and there was no, there was no sound and we were just chatting amongst ourselves. Uh, this would be a good Jason Lane question. It really would be because yeah, I, uh, that's the 2.8 hold on a second anyway I,
1: I just dropped you a link with uh, supposedly a lens diagram for it yeah because the, the sonar has like a, just one block at the back yeah I mean maybe that's a double gauss it's because eh. there's that giant fat second element right which isn't weird right hmm
0: right. Yeah, it's it's not it's. I, I yeah, I I can I can see why you're you're not entirely conv- convinced by that. But I mean, it is it is sort of, I mean, it's a six it's a six element design and it's sort of symmetrical in a way that although it's not,
1: how is that symmetrical? If you looked at yeah. someone's face, oh, no. well, no, well
0: anyway. no, 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 sorry, I'm looking at the wrong one. So no, actually, the one I'm actually looking for here, that that's that's a that's a sonar surely this is great podcast entertainment isn't it oh isn't yeah, this
2: great we're yeah, all looking this yeah. is like you know what this reminds me of, is of when people like in the news now uh, they just re- they just write articles now about what people said on twitter about something that happened it's, i don't give a f- what happened on twitter <laughs> what how, how does informing me what a bunch of random idiots on twitter said about something tell me about the the actual news that happened it's yeah, so, so I just sent
1: you another link, um, and it has <laughs> diagrams for all of them. So the sonar does look different, the rear yeah. element is like clearly non close to symmetrical. Like, click on the second link I just sent you, it's got the sonar on top, and then the second diagram is the AI, which is what I sent you originally. <laughs> 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 see i did my homework and looked this up and now you guys are like forcing us to google stuff <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: oh man i'm looking at your i'm looking at the link now too well we'll put the links here in the podcast notes and this podcast will be very much more entertaining when you saw the notes about what and, we were talking about this yeah is the link is from i think yeah yeah so yeah
0: okay so so basically we can just blame jp holden for, um, <laughs> and uh, my, my hesitancy to talk about this subject is has been borne out as well so uh um, <laughs> so that, there we go uh, if this has upset to anybody it's jp holden's fault so uh um, there we go where where sh- where should we go from 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 here was it was, was, was there something else we wanted to talk about on this subject which i can't remember what we were talking about what was the question again exactly (laughs) we're back on last week as well i know let's let's go to perry uh, because perry's been doing lots of interesting things so um so perry tell 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 us more about your your holiday stroke vacation
1: yeah sure um the 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 first thing before i went was i spent like we've been planning this trip for quite a while so i spent a like unreasonably long amount of time uh deciding what gear to bring um so, like, I knew that I was going to shoot puffins and hopefully whales because we had, like, uh, whale watching and puffin watching tours booked. Um, and then I knew that I wanted to try to shoot the Milky Way. We had that discussion about picking up that Lawa. Um, but I realized that, like, I didn't – the first thing I realized was I didn't have a camera bag um, that was suitable. So, I ended up picking up a Low Pro, um 35AW Transit backpack which is like a sweet backpack that like carries weight really well, but it's got a, a sort of upper compartment so you can use it as a day bag. Um, and I went a little bit overboard because we, I knew we were going to have a car so I could just dump everything in there. Um, so I brought a tripod and a Gorillapod. Um, I didn't end up using the Gorillapod at all. And so I ended up bringing, here's what I ended up bringing. Uh, I brought the my Sony a7R 2 uh that laowa 15 millimeter f2 um i brought two autofocus lenses for the sony for the for birds and shit uh the canon 405 6l with a metabones adapter and then just like this samyang 35 thing kind of as a body cap for the sony um and then for film i brought i changed my mind on this like a million times um but basically the only thing i could fit in this backpack uh, was my Leica CL with the 40 Summicron with the Voigtlander 21mm F4 color R and my Zeiss uh, 85mm F4 Teletessar uh, plus a JCH uh, case with five rolls of Portra in it. Um, yeah, so like deciding on specifically which, which rangefinder gear to bring was extremely difficult because I knew what I wanted to shoot with the Sony, uh, and like, I just kept changing my mind, and in the end, I literally didn't use anything except the c l and the 40 sumicron like <laughs> I didn't even take the the other two lenses out of the bag, so you know there was some some redundancy there and then in the end, i didn't actually end up shooting that much with um with my leica i I brought five rolls of portrait I shot a roll and a half uh and just sent the first fully fully shot roll to the lab um But the rest of the time, I pretty much just shot with my cell phone, except for the Astro and the Puffins. And there was one day when we were in this really strange uh, 18th century fortress called Lewisburg Fortress. And people there were dressed in like, I guess this must be what it's like being Eric and living in Mons. Because
2: everyone was dressed in, <laughs> except in, without uh, dragons.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, minus yeah. the dragon. So everyone was dressed in period garb, and it was it was very odd. So it seemed like a very appropriate time to like shoot film. Um, so I, I put a roll through that day, but apart from that, like, I, even though the scenery was absolutely stunning, I mean we we had beautiful weather all the way throughout. The landscapes on Cape Breton and Prince Edward Island are just like they're they're mind-blowingly gorgeous but i was having such a good time like enjoying the moment and uh you know a- also being disconnected from devices and just you know living out there on the east coast that i didn't really want to sort of interrupt the 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 joy of being
2: oh so Little situation here on the podcast. We um, uh, apparently we lost Simon, and therefore we lost Simon's expert uh, engineering capabilities. So we've jumped over to another um, another way to record this bit of the podcast, which is on Skype. So you may notice some difference in the audio, uh, and we apologize for that. But anyway, we'll get back where we were. Uh, Perry, you were talking about. Being on vacation and not wanting to interrupt the moment, as it were, with fumbling around with various pieces of equipment.
1: Yeah, so so I'm not sure where we lost Simon because um, the internet in Stoke-on-Trent apparently is down. Uh, well, I don't know about the entire city, but at least <laughs> at least in Simon's house. Um, but I was talking about how like photography is a really involving process for me. And so I have to like switch on into photo mode. and this vacation was so enjoyable that, like apart from the moments where I was on and photographing, like shooting puffins or astrophotography, uh, I didn't really feel like interrupting the moment with busting out my cameras and and like going into photo mode. And I found that just kind of taking out my phone and um, taking a few pictures, snapping a few snapshots for, my own memory was good because it 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 didn't require me to kind of like leave the the joy of the moment.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah, totally totally makes sense to me. And I, I think I had mentioned I don't know if it made made this made it in or not, but that's that's when I tend to use my um, Fuji X one hundred S the most uh, because I I just I can't do it on a phone. It just kind of frustrates me that I, you know it's handy, but it seems like a barrier, you know, I don't usually use it to shoot with, but the, but the X100S is, it's really just a point and shoot, digital point and shoot. So that's when I use that camera the most actually is traveling. And for the same reason, I'd rather just kind of be in the moment, you know?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think um, I used to have an X100T and like, I, I agree. It's the perfect camera for that. Cause you can just kind of have it on your side and then just pick it up and click, click. And then, carry on with whatever you were doing no, right. normally i would use um i've got a Ricoh gr uh digital point and shoot that i would use for that kind of thing but yeah the the phone that i got recently it's a, it's a, a huawei p30 pro um it's a really good phone uh, camera yeah. phone so like i find that it just saves me the hassle from having to carry another digital camera right um totally makes sense yeah and, and you know I, I kind of surprised myself because a lot of the times when I go on vacations to exotic locations, I do spend a lot of time shooting um, or I almost like set aside parts of whether, you know, for exploring old temples or seeing cool landscapes or people in their, in, in their uh, local environments, like that I want to shoot. But, but in this instance, it, it it didn't, I guess it didn't feel right. Um, Yeah. And I'm not really sure why, you know, just like some, some a part of me thought I was reflecting on this on the way back and part of me thought like, you know, the, the kinds of things that were in front of me, aren't the kinds of things that I'm normally interested in shooting anyway. Like I haven't shot landscapes seriously for just so many, many years. Um, but I, I think also it was just the mindset that you're in, you know, uh, yeah. because when you take photos, you do then have to do a little bit of work on them, right? Whether it's developing them on film or like post-processing them digitally. And I I just, knowing that that was something that would have to happen next, I almost didn't feel like doing it because it was like, I'm not here to create an image. I'm here to enjoy this experience.
2: Yeah. And it, right. And I think there's something to be said with, you're on vacation with, you know, a partner, significant other, et cetera, it's like, how how much time do you really want to spend, you know, in photo mode, which is what they see you doing all the time. <laughs> yeah. So in a way, it's kind of like a nice break for the people you're with also. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, and I, I, think, I think, you know, um, there are some times when, like, they can be totally understanding with that. Because, like, my, my right. girlfriend enjoys taking photos, too. And yeah. sometimes, you know, when we travel to some of uh, – the places in Southeast Asia where there are some like really striking street scenes in like markets and stuff. Um, She'll also want to bust out a camera and do some street photography around like Thailand or um, shooting monks in temples uh, in Cambodia and stuff. But when it's just like miles and miles of like pristine nature, uh, especially because it was mostly in, in in daylight sort of, you know, not like sunrise sunset or any particularly special light. Um yeah you, you want to kind of enjoy the ability to just look around and and breathe right. the air and have a chat um without then you know staring at each other staring through a viewfinder
2: Totally. And then yeah. digital
1: staring at a screen.
2: Right? right. Yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. I you know, I think it's another reason I kind of yeah a lot of times when people say hey, I'm going on vacation, it's like those posts on our various, you know, groups that we're in on Facebook, et cetera. I'm going on vacation. What gear should I take? And I, I kind of feel like, and I mean, I'm guilty of that too. I've gone through that thought process, but I think what I end up doing is I just end up taking the gear. I shoot every day because I'm familiar with it and I don't have to spend as much time messing around with the stuff that I'm most familiar with. It's just, it feels like more natural. You know what I mean? So I, I, I feel like I just, use the gear I shoot normally when I travel because that's what I shoot with. And I'm kind of when I, yeah. So when I, when I want to shoot something, it feels like just more of a natural part of my day-to-day activity anyway, versus a special thing that I'm doing with a special camera or whatever, because I'm traveling. Does that make any sense?
1: No, it makes total sense because with the exception of the, two lenses on the sony that i brought for a very specific purpose and i did use them for that purpose and i'll talk yeah. about that in a moment um with my rangefinder I-, I never changed lenses like of the three lenses i brought right you know, here in hong kong 90 percent of the time i'm shooting with a 35 millimeter lens uh, and yeah. I, with my leica cl I, I just kept the 40 millimeter somicron on yeah. the entire time because right, that's right. how i shoot normally and, and this has totally happened to me in the past um <laughs> Sometimes it's different because a lot of the times when I travel, I bring uh, my X-T10. So oh, it's yeah. not a film camera. And I pretty much only use that for travel. So usually I'll bring the X-T10 with like three really small rangefinder lenses or maybe a Fuji 18 um, millimeter F2 autofocus lens. And so yeah. in, in, in that case, it's like it's new, it's different gear. So I am swapping around a little bit more. But right. on the trips where I do bring like a film camera, Especially one of my Leicas, I, I almost never change lenses. I'm trying to remember the last time. Yeah. The last time I can remember actually changing a lens um, was a trip to Germany last summer where I wanted to take some super wide-angle shots, so I took off a 35 mil and I put on the uh, 21 mil. Um, yeah. A- apart from that, like the lens I use normally sticks, sticks on, stays on all the time. But that's also the same as Hong Kong. Like so when I'm shooting day to day, it's mostly 35 mil. And sometimes when there's right. like, I, when I want an ultra wide shot, I'll take it off and put the 21 on. So it, it really yeah. is no. Difference. Yeah. You're totally right there. So just bring the stuff you normally bring.
2: Yeah. And I, I mean, I do that pretty often just daily. Um, I, I'll carry, well, a lot of times I'll carry two, two cameras with two different lenses, like a, a 35 and a 50 or a, you know, a th- a a 35 and a 21 or whatever. So then I can just like pull a different camera out that's already set up and ready to go. And sometimes maybe I'll also have like a third lens in the bag just in case I need to, you know, like a, a longer lens for a particular use, but I don't use it very often. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I think about making it quick and convenient and keeping it in like the zone that you're usually in anyway is a good way to is a good way to do it. Um so you're not kind of distracted by by all the different gear and thinking about all the different choices. You know, you get that like paralysis, choice paralysis. <laughs> and and so, thinking
1: back, you know, um I, I was having a chat with Rob Jameson on, on Facebook Messenger about not wanting to bring like loads of gear to areas where you might sort of have questionable if not safety issues, just like being un- un- unable to lock things the way that you normally would. Oh, yeah. Um, but 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 also on on that, I think the last few trips I've gone on have been, like, really short just weekend excursions. And I've just brought the Beta r with the Canon 35 F2 LTM because, like, I only bring a backpack. I travel really light on those weekend excursions. And I think subconsciously I know, like, this is all I need. This is all I really need to use. And if I lose my Beta r for whatever reason, I'm not going to be heartbroken because um, okay. it's easily replaced. And like I've never felt the need to switch to a different lens um, because I, I I was using it for general purpose shooting as opposed to like a very specific purpose. because I, I do think you know the flip side of that is if you're traveling specifically for photography, right, and a lot of people do that. If you're right. like driving through I don't know Yosemite or something, right, um, or you're visiting like a really exotic place for a long period of time, there are going to be instances where as like a travel photographer, almost you're not going to want to be missing the gear. Cause if you're like in the middle of, I don't know, the Sahara desert and yeah. you need a specific lens, you can't exactly go and like grab it, right. right. Or, or even rent one from a shop. So the yeah. context and the, the goal of what you're trying to do with your travel makes a big difference too. Oh, for I, sure. I do know there are a lot of people who like travel almost specifically for the purpose of taking travel photos. Mm-hmm. And in in those cases, I think it's totally legit to like pack tons of stuff, even if you don't use a lot of it.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I I really have that um that feeling about security. I mean I I kind of feel that way even in Chicago. I mean I you know I um, I always keep my stuff on me. I I've never I never ever ever leave cameras in a car. I mean I wouldn't leave them in a hotel room. So basically, I only carry as much stuff as I can carry on my person the entire time. Um, So carrying too much stuff can be really problematic in that case if you've got five cameras and, you know, 12 lenses or whatever. So I I, I make a point of I only carry what I literally can physically carry with me continuously. So, you know, that helps to kind of keep down the amount of stuff as well, perhaps. Oh. Yeah,
1: I think I'm like that, too. Usually, even on these little um, weekend excursions, what I'll do is I'll just stick a little uh, sort of day bag into my my master suitcase and yeah. also, or my master backpack and then only put whatever gear I can fit into that. Um, it, it was different on this trip because I, a lot of the times I left my gear in the car and then just took a smaller camera bag for whatever we were doing at the time. But it, it, it's the East Coast of Canada. You know, like there's no yeah. one there. there are, there's, right. There's, like unless a moose is gonna break into my car and then like use its antlers to take pictures, um I wasn't worried. <laughs> I wasn't worried at all in, in that context. But I totally know what you mean. Like even if, yeah. if even if it's kind of secure, you don't you don't wanna leave, you know, especially expensive stuff lying around in a hotel room.
3: Right, um, right.
1: Or anywhere where someone might be tempted to like bust in and, and take a look, right?
2: Yeah. 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 Um, I'm always concerned about that, so
1: yeah, I mean, I think I think from a from an engagement point of view, as I think Simon would say, um, it would be interesting to hear from any listeners about how how they travel, how they choose what gear to to put out. Wait, I, I think the Sunny Sixteen podcast added asked like exactly this question last week on one of their shows. Oh, so, did they? Yeah. Yeah. So, scrap that. We're not going to copy. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um,
1: yeah. Okay, so are, are are we done with that topic?
2: Yeah, I guess. Although, so, did you you talked a bit about um, astro photography? Yeah, I, yeah. So I, were you we gonna talk about that lens you used uh, a bit? Yeah. So I, I think I think um, the yeah the next thing
1: I wanted to talk about was what I actually did shoot. Um, so I you know I used I used the Leica for like one and a half rolls of portrait, but the stuff that I brought specifically to shoot, I did use it. So the Laowa 15 millimeter F2, uh, which I bought specifically for this trip, we got lucky. Um, on one of the nights, it rained kind of early evening, which cleared up all of the lingering clouds in the sky. So by the time night fell, the sky was crystal clear.
3: Wow. And
1: we did manage to catch a glimpse of the Milky Way. Um, and the timing was perfect because sometimes the Milky Way rises at like 2 or 3 a.m. And so even if, uh, it's there. It's, it's not ideal to shoot when you're traveling with a partner. <laughs> I'm not going right. to drag my girlfriend out at two in the morning. To like <laughs> live, right. Um,
3: yeah.
1: No, but we got lucky. It, it, it rose at about 10 o'clock um, and sky was crystal clear and we could see it basically right next to our Airbnb. So we just had to kind of walk outside and then go to a sort of cliff side. Um, and so shooting after with this thing was kind of interesting because like, I've done this before with other lenses and it's been a while since I've used kind of a modern, modern lens. And the first thing that like annoyed me a lot was infinity wasn't an infinity. And a lot, a lot um, of modern yeah. lenses, do this. They'll, they'll go past infinity, which I understand right. for autofocus lenses because, you know, it's got to like rack past infinity and then try to find the point. And I, I even get it to a certain extent with manual focus lenses because, manufacturers will say things like in different temperature conditions, the infinity point can change. Yeah. But it, it still really annoys me when a lens doesn't have like a hard infinity stop. Yeah. Um, and this one did go a little bit past infinity. So I had to like use the zoom in function um, on my Sony to actually get the shot. But I, I posted t- two, uh, one, one of the photos that I shot of the Milky way with like a house in the foreground. Yeah. Uh, um, And I think Lawrence Dunn, who does quite a lot of astro was like giving me advice to avoid sources of light pollution like that house, which which I think makes sense. But in this context, just just to give an idea of where we were, there was a very small town kind of behind where we were standing with a little bit of light from the town coming out. And then in in front of us was literally a cliff, like a 200 foot (laughs) that went straight down into the ocean. Um, so my choices of foreground were literally either absolutely nothing, uh, or this house. And so I have a shot of just the Milky Way, but that's boring, right? You can, you can go on like nasa.com and look at that, um, right. much better in much better quality. So I actually enjoyed sort of sticking the house in the foreground, composing with its ultra wide, uh, and then, you know, doing the long exposure for Astro. Yeah, it, it worked pretty well. The other shot I have is, is kind of a, uh, one of those, like, shots of me and my girlfriend standing there looking at the stars. So I wasn't going to post that
2: publicly. Yeah. Well, I, I really like that shot with the house and kind of for the reason that you mentioned it to me, it's, it's a lot more interesting than just a plain, you know, Milky way in the sky kind of shot, because like you said, you can kind of, you can get NASA's gigantic high resolution shots of that if you want, but I think it placing it in a location that you're in, um is is a lot more interesting
1: yeah totally because i think if you're only shooting um the milky way or you're shooting like uh especially hardcore astro where you're using like a telescope to shoot nebulas and stuff that's more of an exercise in like technical photography for me yeah Um, whereas for 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 my taste if you're going to shoot the milky way i really prefer the shots that have like the context of the landscape um, so that you're seeing the Milky Way as part of an overall image, rather right, than just right. like a technically well-executed picture of yeah. the Milky Way itself, just to show, yeah. like, I, I did it because I can, right? Yeah, totally. Totally makes sense. Oh, man, but, but post-processing Milky Way pictures is a pain in the butt. <laughs> yeah. I, I, don't, I don't even want to get into that, but I've done it before, and I, I remember it being a pain in the butt. Um, Because I I don't do, like, people who shoot Milky Way, a lot of them do stuff like um, focus stacking um, or, like, blending multiple exposures. I'm way too lazy to do that kind of crap. Yeah, me too. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just, like, taking the one raw file out of the Sony. And even then, you've got to do a whole bunch of stuff with adjusting your white balance and then, like, making sure that there's a whole lot of editing. Because the picture you get out looks nothing like the final image. yeah yeah. you've got overexposed bits here and then the sky is more sort of gray than black um and then the milky way is you can see it pretty clear in the raw file but it doesn't kind of stand out in any meaningful way so you've really got to adjust like white and black and contrast um and colors to really make it stick out and it took me like oh it took me much longer to edit the picture than actually shoot the damn thing
2: yeah (laughs) right yeah that kind of stuff drives me crazy
1: (laughs) I did realize, though, that F2 is totally unnecessary um, because I, I think I shot most of the images of the Milky Way at F2.8. Uh, mm-hmm. The exposures were somewhere between, I don't know, 15 seconds or 30 seconds. Um, but especially given the ISO performance of these newer cameras, I yeah. think I could have gone away with an F4 lens.
2: even. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. yeah so, it- so just push the ISO up. And you're good. Yeah, because you you got to kind of push the ISO anyway. Yeah.
1: Uh, so at, at that point, uh, I I think you know back in the day people were able to shoot um, Milky Way shots on film, right? It was doable, right?
3: Sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So so when you're jacking up your ISO to like 3200 or 6400, and the performance is still pretty good, to me I don't see that much of a difference with like an ISO 800, 1600, 3200 shot on a the, the Sony yeah. that yeah. it's meaningful enough to really need a fast lens. Because with right. F2, it just makes less stuff in focus in the foreground yeah. and also just makes it more difficult um, to focus precisely.
2: Sure. Yeah, it makes sense.
1: Yeah. So I didn't need to buy that lens is my point. I could have brought, like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I could have brought, like, the Voidlander Superwide DLR and did a reasonably good job with that.
2: Yeah, that, see that that's that's kind of my thought as well. It, even you know buying, uh, even buying system lenses for these cameras, like the you know the Fuji Fuji cameras, they have you know the super fast lenses like sixteen millimeter one point fours and all mm-hmm. that. But then they've got this great line of lenses that are you know they're all like f two twenty three f two thirty five f two fifty f two and they're much smaller. They handle better, yeah. and it's like well. You can, if you need the 1.4, just bump the ISO up one stop. Nobody's going to, you're not going to, it's not going to cause a great deal of trouble. I I mean.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I think that's true. Although as like, you know, I I think both of us have Fuji cameras, right? I have quite a few of those lenses. And I got to say specifically against that line, um, I never really liked the 23 F2 or the 35 F2, Mm -hmm. um. I really like the 35 1.4 and I think it is just a traditional like double gauss design.
3: Yeah. Whereas
1: the 35 F2 has like a billion elements in like a thousand yeah. weeks. <laughs> right. Uh, and so like to me, the 35 1.4, even though the autofocus is slower, it looks really nice. Um, and then I used to have the 16 1.4, but I sold it because I didn't use it very much. But that lens is fantastic.
2: Yeah. Um, it is a nice it, lens.
1: It's outstanding. Yeah. yeah. But I totally see what you mean. Like, you know, those lenses... It's not the it's not so much the speed that's necessary as just like having it there because you can.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. All right. So well. Um, yep. Yeah. I was gonna say any any other uh, real highlights from from your from your travels, photographically or even otherwise.
1: Yeah, the only other one photographically was um, the puffin. Now, like, I'm not going to talk about this too much because I was using an autofocus lens, um, a Canon one with a Metabones adapter. But, you know, a, a lot of the shots that I ended up getting, apart from the ones with the puffins in flight, were like, I got to use autofocus. Because they're small and they're fast as hell. And we're on a moving boat. And I don't, even, with the, even in this situation, like, I'm not super, I'm not a super big fan of using burst mode. Um, But there's no way in hell I'm getting puffins in flight with manual
3: focus. (laughs) (laughs) Right.
1: But what I did find was like when we were shooting puffins and also whales, um, because we we got really lucky and saw like some pretty amazing sort of marine life. When they're in the water, I found myself using manual focus a lot more. Possibly because I'm just more comfortable with it. But also possibly because I think autofocus really struggles in that situation. Because you've got like waves and water and all this stuff. Um, and like, I don't think the camera knows what the hell I want to focus on. Right. (laughs) Because like with moving waves, the camera will just sort of focus on whatever the movement of the boat and the waves have centered at that very moment. Right. So what I ended up doing was almost like zone focusing. I would like watch when a puffin sort of dove underwater and I would like zone focus on the point where it went underwater, knowing that it's going to come back out at that same point. (laughs)
2: That's, That's smart. Yeah.
1: It was the only way I could get the shot because with autofocus, nothing was in focus because it kept focusing on like the closest wave tip um, to the camera. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, those were those were kind of cool and and I got to gloat a little bit because right before I went on this trip, Hamish Gill went on a a puffin seeing tour as well. I, I think in the UK. Um, so we were chatting about this. He didn't he didn't see any puffins. So he's he's jealous of my shot.
2: Oh really? he yeah, nope.
1: yeah.
2: Puffinless puffin tour, huh? Um
1: yeah, yeah. We went to a we went to a rock where like they nest, so we knew that they were gonna be there and we just kind of watched them from a distance on a boat. Whereas I think he tried to find them in the UK where some somewhere where they sometimes are.
2: Oh okay. Yeah. Alright.
1: But apart from that, yeah, the trip was super nice. I mean, um the weather was perfect. We ate a lot of great Canadian seafood, mostly lobster. Uh, and just I bawled. was just
2: going to ask you about the lobster. <laughs>
1: really? Yeah, seriously. Well, I mean, there's no... You know, one thing that annoys me, right, is, like, people from Maine, they they always go on about their lobster, right? But, like, right. Maine shares... If you look at a map of the U.S. Right. and a map of Canada, Maine <laughs> just kind of, like, cuts into the eastern <laughs> corridor of Canada. And it takes, like, a chunk out of eastern Quebec. Just right. so they can fish lobster in the Canadian waters, because yeah. like it's right next to Nova Scotia, all the lobsters are coming out from that area. Um, so yeah, I mean they're just super fresh, they're super cheap, they're super delicious. I, we, my, my girlfriend and I, we kept a lobster count um, because like there's just nowhere else in the world where you're going to get lobster this fresh and this cheap. Right. And I and like I think we had lobster like seventeen times.
2: Wow. On the trip.
1: Because in Hong Kong it's like it's super expensive and it's not that good. And yeah. so like she always accuses me of being a seafood snob because I like I won't eat the lobster here. So I'm like, oh it's overpriced and it's no good. But now yeah. she she is fully converted to the uh Canadian maritime. maritime. Yeah,
2: called the cold water lobster. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So um tell me this. This is an important lobster question, Perry G. Do they yeah. do because so my, my family is from the Boston area, my dad's side. So I, you know, I spent a lot of time on Cape Cod and they have a lot of lobsters out there, too. Um, so but part of part of the best part of visiting that part of the world to me was always eating lobster rolls. Do they make lobster rolls in Nova Scotia?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> not just in Nova Scotia, across the entire East Coast. Yeah. Uh, now, the the cool thing there was, like, almost everywhere we went, their lobster rolls and their seafood chowder was a little different. Yeah. And the best lobster roll we had was in a little tiny town in Prince Edward Island um, called the Lobster Barn. And basically, like, they do lobster rolls the way they're supposed to be, yeah. uh, where it's just, like, a toasted buttered bun with, like, a piece of lettuce and then just huge chunks of lobster, like, That's entire claws and stuff.
2: Yes, that sounds like a perfect a, lobster
1: roll. With a, yeah, with just a little bit of mayo on top or something, right? Yeah. Cuz there are some places that will like, you know, basically tear up the lobster and mix it almost into like a weird lobster salad where there's more mayo than lobster. Right. And they give you a lobster roll where you can barely taste the lobster, right? And that's like a super obnoxious way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. The the right way is to have basically like an entire lobster almost fully intact <laughs> in the right. roll. Right.
2: I totally totally (laughs) agree.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, So we we had plenty of that. Um, But the last one was the best. And, 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 you know, one of the great things about the entire area is it's relatively uh, sort of un... It's not that touristy. There aren't loads and loads of tourists kind of uh, causing crowds everywhere, partly because it's such a pain to get there. It's like a four-hour drive to Cape Breton from the nearest big airport in Halifax. Wow. Uh, And that was just really refreshing because especially here in Asia, almost everywhere you go for travel, there's going to be like billions of tourists.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. But, you know, not just the lobsters. The mussels in Prince Edward Island are outstanding. Uh, Oh, sure. Yeah, because, you know, it, it, it was the kind of place where, like, you could point to... Um, one of the restaurants, they like pointed to the bay behind the restaurant and they were like, the mussels came from there. <laughs> <laughs> like, we were, we were wa- walking along the beach one day and there's just like oysters and mussels and clams just there all yeah. over the place in the water as we're, walking along, as we're walking along the coast. So, I mean, it doesn't get any fresher than the than wow. nation. So, yeah. I, I still think, though, that the best way to eat a lobster is just whole lobster in front of you. With right. some butter. Lobster rolls are great, but the entire thing is better
2: in my opinion. Yes. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Wow. Well well that's out that's outstanding. Um I'm I am really jealous. That's a part of the world I have always wanted to visit also, and I have never been there. Uh and I and I love the sort of the east coast um you know, along the Atlantic right there is great. So I, I hope I can get there someday. That's amazing. Yeah.
1: The Maritimes are are really nice place to visit because people are so chill. Um, and, and I've been there before. This is, I think my second long trip across the Canada East coast, but my, my girlfriend's lived in Hong Kong her whole life. So she's not used to like people being friendly and just, just, <laughs> just chatting, <laughs> sort of chatting with you and having conversations like normal human being. Yeah. Um, So there was, I think the first, our first encounter with like a random person was in a a local drugstore where we were picking up some stuff from the road. And this super friendly guy named Steve just came up and had a chat with us uh, about where we were from, (laughs) what we were doing. And I could see in my girlfriend's eyes that she was like doing this calculation in her head, being like, what does he want? Why is he talking to us? (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Want to rob us? Does he want, does he want money from us? Like, what's going on there?" I don't, yeah. I don't know if that's a Hong Kong thing or a city thing I think it's a city thing I, I think, think it's, it's
2: a, yeah I think it's a city thing I I, I I kind of I get in that mode too sometimes because if some random person in Chicago just starts talking to you they're gonna ask you for money right after they tell you the story about how they're stranded and they need money to get to the bus and their kids are waiting for them at the state you know it's that whole thing so yeah,
1: yeah <laughs> exactly I feel like that in Toronto as well sometimes so yeah. I think it's a city thing where you know when there's so many people around you you can't possibly acknowledge each one as a human being or you're you're never going to get anything done right yeah so the entire crowd of the city sort of dehumanizes it whereas when you're in a place like the east coast of canada where there's like there there was one town we went to where the population was literally like 700 people um so you kind of you, you have to talk to every single person you encounter and that was another weird thing like when we were in uh lewisburg in nova scotia i i was taking a lot of portraits of people sort of animal mystery style just like stopping them and asking them if i could take their portrait and i realized that the language barrier in hong kong is what's stopping me from doing that and not just necessarily the city barrier oh okay i I can't articulate well enough in chinese like a justification for me wanting to take the photo (laughs) Um, and with my with my terrible chinese i think it's really easy to get like unsettled by some random person asking you if you can take their portrait, right?
3: Right, right.
1: Yeah, yeah. Whereas, um, I think earlier today I posted a shot of like the this guy in Lewisburg uh, selling bread, like wearing a baker's outfit, and that was one of those just having a chat with him and then asking him if I could take his photo, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, totally." Hold up the piece of bread. Yeah. Yeah, Whew. cool. So that that's uh that's the East Coast trip and uh now we're back in Hong Kong.
2: Yeah, well congratulations on a a great uh great voyage and a great journey. It sounds like it was a lot of fun.
1: Thank you, thank you. So is there anything um
2: that you want to update us on or uh, you want to talk about? Um I I've certainly not any travels. I haven't been anywhere this summer. So maybe sometime soon we'll see but um i've just been here in chicago the whole time so i don't have any any exciting travel stories to talk about unfortunately um i i mean i guess well i not to change the subject on a totally different direction but i guess that's what i'm gonna do um i mean the big news for me this week quite honestly was that um my I guess I'd have to call her my 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 biggest photographic inspiration slash mentor, um, and my uh, instructor that I worked the most with when I was uh, at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago passed away this week, Um, and Mm -hmm. that was Barbara Crane. She was ninety-one years old, and um, I mean, I guess I really did just want to acknowledge that because it it, it's such a huge she's just been such a huge part of my life you know, photographically for, for decades now. Um, uh, And the things that I, I learned with her in her classes way back in the, you know, late eighties, early nineties are, I still think about them every single day. So, um, so I did want to, I did want to mention that, that, um, that we lost Barbara crane this week, who is an amazing photographer and an amazing teacher. And I'm going to put some links into the podcast notes where people can check out our work Um, because I think that it is pretty much the most varied body of work you're ever going to come across. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, she was a hugely experimental photographer who did, you know, everything from straight photography, very kind of traditional straight photography to really experimental stuff. A lot of stuff with photography, with uh, Polaroid materials and instant photography, alternative processes. Um, So her, her body of work is just truly truly incredible and um and I I I just took a lot of inspiration from the way that she she looked at the world and um in particular and I think about this all the time um in particular the way that she uh thought about and talked about uh sequential photography so Mm -hmm. You know the the importance of sequencing photographs together and what they mean when you put them together or repeat them or layer them. Um, that's something I really picked up entirely from from Barbara. And I I think about this every like literally every time I post something on Instagram. I mean I think about what the photo was I posted before it, what the photo I'm going to post after it is, and it really makes me more thoughtful about the images I share and the way I share them. Um, and even the pictures I take, I feel like I, you know, the way I kind of go through the world photographically is I see something and then I look for other things like that, and it's almost like I, I, it's like a constant, non-ending stream of things that are somehow vaguely related um, that I'm seeing, and it. So her, the things I learned from her shape the way. I put a camera up to my eyes like literally every time I do it, and i I, I just wanted to say how grateful I am to Barbara for that and um, and just how much that that meant and she was just a wonderful person and an amazing photographer um, and i I just learned so much from her that I, I I really felt like I wanted to acknowledge in some way the fact that you know we did lose her this week and but she had an amazing life and did uh, just incredible work and and helped and taught so many photographers um so uh so yeah um barbara crane thank you so much for everything and and you know i think about you literally every day doing photography and i'm so grateful so um so i'll put some links to barbara's work and you know check check those out for sure um yeah, and i don't know really, uh
1: Sorry, go on yeah
2: no i was I, I was just gonna say i mean it, it, Maybe a, a, I don't know that we want to do it today. I'm not suggesting we do, but, you know, I'd love to have a, a an episode where we just talk about photographers that have influenced us and maybe people who are not even, you know, know the, not even the greats that maybe a lot of people know about. But just people that we follow on Instagram or wherever um, that influence us, that are making work, you know, every day around us, I think would be a great topic at some point.
1: Yeah, that's something that I, I would love to do an episode on as well. Um, but I was I was looking through some of the links that you sent earlier uh, of her work. And uh, you're right. I mean, it's so varied. There was that one article you sent that was talking about her time as one of the first foreign photographers allowed into China. Yeah. Um, and she's got some really amazing documentary stuff there. But then she's also got like abstract nudes. Um, yeah. And the entire spectrum is pretty much is, is pretty much covered there. But I think the thing that you were saying earlier about um, her influence on the way that you look at sequential photography is super interesting because, you know, there's a lot to be said, you know, a- anyone can get lucky, right, and shoot a bunch of photos and end up with one amazing shot. Right. But it really takes a lot more thought to produce a coherent body of work. Yeah. And I think, like, the photographers that, like, are most, at least most influential to me as photographers are the ones who, whose body of work speaks for, speaks to the way that they saw the world and the way that they um, approach their photography as opposed to, like, oh, I like this photographer because he produced this, like, one image or she produced this one image uh, yeah. that, like, totally blew my mind. Right, right, right. Yeah.
2: Yeah, um, I, I, I agree with that for sure.
1: The other thing is um, you mentioned that she was both a photographic influence uh, as well as a mentor. And that's really interesting. I mean, if if you're comfortable talking about it, I'm I'm actually really curious to know what kind of mentorship she did with you. Because when it comes to photographic influences, from my perspective, I can think of like photographers whose body of work I consider like a huge influence on me. But then I also think of like photographic teachers um who have also been really influential on me not because of their body of work but because of the way they actually like taught but i can't think of anyone who is both for me but it sounds like you're talking about her in both of those terms
2: well yeah and i mean i think part of that is that um the way she taught it it felt very personal like there was a lot of personal time with her uh, and and even like after you know i didn't I didn't spend a lot of time well, I shouldn't say that I did in the years after I um, graduated from you know the school Art institute um, here in Chicago i you know for for at least a decade after that, I spent a lot of time with her and i actually uh I, I actually worked with her a bit she was um she had this uh summer well, just like a, just a house in, in Michigan in the forest. And it was this kind of amazing, it was like being in a tree house. And it was like this house up in the trees and it was surrounded by trees. And in her house, she just had all this stuff. She collected just these, you know, natural things and non-natural things. Like she, you know, things that she would find while you were out walking around. Um, But, you know, like little wasp nests and, you know, interesting pieces of wood and all this stuff in rocks and she had all this stuff and it was like surrounded by these things that she would collect that were that then would become part of things she would photograph. So they'd end up in the photographs, too. And so I actually worked with her on prototyping a book that she did um, for one of these bodies of work. So I worked with her quite a bit um in scanning some of her images and sequencing them together into like you know into book format to see how they work together and so i worked with her sort of somewhat professionally a little bit too um but i mean i i got as i've got way more out of that probably than i gave to her ultimately um i mean she did you know publish some things based on that but i got to actually work with her um and talk about the stuff that i was doing and and the same sort of approach where sequencing images, I mean, I was, I was doing some of that as well, and um, it really ultimately led to my interest in um, half-frame photos, photography, because the, the sequencing aspect of, of half-frame images is just like a natural thing that seems to come out of working in that format. You know, you end up putting two or three or more images together kind of in sequence, Um, so I really learned that from, from Barbara and that was a a primary reason that I, I have such an interest in half frame photography is, is that element of sequencing and how images work together in sequence. So, so she really, um, in the years after I graduated, it was like the things that I, we had talked about in the classroom. We kind of, I continued talking with her about after as well. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, it can be really difficult if you're, you know, studying a subject like that, and then you graduate and you kind of go off into the world and do your own thing and get a job and do this and that. But I, I, I felt like I got to continue having like this, you know, student teacher relationship with her. But it's different once you're, you know, not a student anymore. And and so that was a, a huge influence on me and kind of kept me um, wanting to make photos and and really being particular about what i wanted to make photos of which i feel like i still am you know now as Mm -hmm. well so that that's really where i feel like she you know going beyond being just a, a teacher you know it was um it was it was above and beyond any other you know kind of relationship i had with a teacher at any other point in my in my life so it was really just a unique a unique time spent with her doing that
1: that that's so cool because I mean the it, it, it must be such an amazing experience being able to not only like learn from but work with someone who sounds like she was an amazing teacher but also as a yeah. photographer has a body of work that you just like admire yeah um, <laughs> because yeah. the the photography sort of teachers that I've had um, or the workshops I've gone to there's never been that overlap between the two, you know, I had a, yeah. I had a darkroom teacher um, for when I was taking classes in at hard house in the university of Toronto. And he was an awesome teacher specifically because he was super, super critical and super harsh. So yeah. when I would make like prints and shots um, develop shots in the dark room and bring them and show him, he would be like, Oh, That's crap. 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 Right. So then finally, when there's one <laughs> shot where he's like, that's a good shot here's why and you, you like you printed that well and here's what you did well it's so satisfying yeah um but i wouldn't be able to tell you any of his work like i don't even remember his name it was that long ago wow whereas uh, but you know that that leaves a that whole experience left a lasting impression on me because um you know one of my other teachers he gave me a really hard time for always shooting with telephoto lenses back in the day he was like look all you do is Uh, pick out a subject and make it sharp um and you know that you're like trapped in this tunnel vision and he forced me to spend like two weeks shooting with a 35 millimeter lens um yeah and that just like completely like rewired my brain in terms of how i was going about shooting um and composing but again I i wouldn't be able to tell you like even their names i don't remember Whereas when I have taken like workshops with with more well known photographers or even a kind of a couple of Magnum photographers, like they're really they were really impersonal. (laughs) They they were you could see why photography was their profession, Um, why that kind of Magnum style (laughs) documentary photography was their profession, uh, profession because they really weren't good with people, and I was I was like learning nothing from them. <laughs> um, even though I think their work is mind blowing. So I've never had that experience of like learning from someone directly whose work also I find amazing. It's always been a sort of separate, you know, indirect yeah. information or like <laughs> direct teaching uh, experience. Yeah,
2: yeah. No, that makes a and lot I, of sense. And yeah. I, I've had teachers like that too. I know exactly what you mean.
1: Yeah, and I, I do kind of miss that because. You know, nowadays you you post something out uh, on the Internet and it's always like, oh, that's amazing. Like, 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 like. And it's all this kind of positive reinforcement and external Mm -hmm. validation. Um, But I I do enjoy, you know, having someone who knows what they're talking about and whose opinion I respect just like just rip the crap out of my work. Right. (laughs) Because it just makes it all the more satisfying when you produce something that like, yeah, "This, this is good stuff.
2: Yeah. And, and she would do that too. I mean, she would, she would, she, you know, she would very much, she was very honest about, um, what she thought about work and, and she definitely had opinions and in a good way. I mean, it was really, really helpful, um, to hear that cause it made, it made you push yourself, you know, harder, uh, to do work that was, that was most in tune with what, where you were trying to get to. And I, I think what you said about bodies of work, You know, to me, that's a a really important concept is um, how does what I'm shooting fit into a larger context of other things that I photograph? Uh, And and, you know, it's like saying, well, I do, you know, street photography or whatever. But it's a very it's a certain thing that I'm trying to do within that kind of genre of something that we could give a name to. You know, I'm not. I, I'm trying to do it in a way that i I know is my own take on it right and i and I think that's the that's the part that is really difficult is finding your own your own vision within that larger context that that is easy to easy to put a label on, and it's putting your trying to figure out where you fit within that right and and so I feel like barbara um you know that's the way she worked and and I think it encouraged me to think about working that way as well. And to look for the, the, the deeper um, context of the things that I, that I'm doing and, and how they all relate together. And then that leads to the next body of work, you know? And that's what I found really amazing about her work is that she did these incredibly varied things, but they were all, they all grew on each other and from each other in certain ways. I mean, Sometimes an idea just comes completely out of the blue, but I feel like most ideas come from making other work. Yeah. and somehow that making other work stuff, you know, that's where you get the ideas. And then the other thing I learned from Barbara is she used to call it happy accidents. Um, mm-hmm. that she really embraced the random and the accidental. and And she had like entire bodies of work based on, you know, having, Shooting maybe some Polaroids and the flash power was up too high. And, it, you know, it, it kind of blew everything out. And then she did an entire huge body of work of Polaroids that are just like these blown out uh, flash shots where, where it just becomes about shapes and everything. And so, like, you know, embracing the accidental, I, I mean, I, part of it, honestly, I think is a very part of the mass, the male genius thought a school of photography where it's like, you're this genius and you do it all right because you're a genius or whatever. And Barbara was like, you know, it was, she wasn't that way. It was like, she understood like the things that happen accidentally are sometimes the very best things. And that's kind of embracing mistakes and, and, and realizing that that's where some of the most creative things come from. I feel like is a very different way of approaching, approaching it all when you're already a really well respected and renowned photographer i mean you don't have to necessarily ever acknowledge you make make mistakes right but but rather i mean actually saying no mistakes are like primal they're like the primal part of what you do and i think so i i think learning that embracing the the stuff that is not what you thought was going to happen is just as important as the mental part of you that's calculating what you want to do or how you want to make an image, you know, you've got to, you have to, you have to embrace the things that come along sort of accidentally that you're not expecting also.
1: Yeah. Hamish has an article out today um, about like a broken camera that he shot with um, Ah. and and kind of embracing the mistakes because he he had a bunch of pictures of his daughter uh, that had red light leaks all over the place. And um, he, he just wanted to chuck the thing but his wife ended up like absolutely adoring the pictures and kind oh, of forcing awesome. him to sit down and look at sort of the images for what they were. And they, and they kind of grew to he, he grew to like them um, as they went through that process. But yeah. I, I totally know what you mean. And I think that's something that uh, I experience a lot more shooting film than with digital. Right. Right. Uh, because when you're shooting digitally and, and there's a mistake in the shot. Um, or like something happens that you didn't intend. There's almost a temptation of like, Oh, that screwed up the shot. Um, and some people would even delete the photo. Whereas like when you're going through the process of developing the film, especially if you like wait a while before you develop it and you, you sort of forget what's on the roll. Um, and you look at the images and you're like, Whoa, I didn't know that, you know, this thing was here. Like, so there's, there's a, one of my photos that I don't think I've shared. Um, was from a series of sort of street work that I was working on in Hong Kong. And it's this picture of this woman kind of walking past this this like really geometric background. But when I developed the image and I and I got it back, there was a dude's head in the foreground, like completely occupying the bottom right of the frame that I had not noticed. Like as he was walking straight in front of me. But wow. His his face the kind of position of his face um, and the woman's face were like exactly mirroring each other. And they were yeah. both wearing like pretty similar looking glasses. So there was like the main subject and then this like giant bouquet head, which was like a male head that was sort of a magnified version of her head. And I remember wow. seeing the picture of being like, yo, that makes it so much better. Even though <laughs> not only is that an error, like I didn't even realize that. That was something that would, was even in front of me as I was making the photo. Yeah, yeah. Whereas I think if I was shooting that digitally, I would have seen it right away, and I might have even just like chucked it or, or tried to shoot tried the shot again.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, very cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think there's there's a lot to that. Um, it's it's too easy to just delete things with digital. <laughs> so if you if you don't think you got it right right there in the moment you just delete it and go to the next thing so
1: yeah and, and the diversity of the body of work you were talking about is fairly rare to see i think the, the only the only photographer i can think of um who off the top of my head who has like uh a similarly like insanely diverse uh body of work is um Sebastian salgado oh yeah oh my gosh right Like he's like this guy he's his work is just insanely diverse. But, but I think if you, because I have a couple of, of his books, I think if you sort of look at the work, I can see exactly what you're describing where some of the earlier work, even though the subject matter is totally unrelated, you can sort of see how it informs the progression of his later work. And yeah. there's a really cool documentary um, about his life where he actually talks about that transition from shooting like oppressed miners to like nature and yeah. how it's all part of a journey of growth as a human being as well as a photographer. Um, so there's like a common, like the common thread that links all the work is him, right? And that and when you got a diverse body of work, uh, like like Barbara did, I, I think, you know, obviously I didn't know her, but even even looking at her photos, I think you can see that there's an there are el there are elements of her in all of her work, and that really like links all of it together, right?
2: Right exactly exactly and and i guess that's you know my thought is that I, I would hope that all of my work um somehow it you know there's that there's somehow there's that truth in it that's your own personal thing um that that makes it uniquely yours i mean that's the hope anyway right i don't know if we uh, it's hard hard to achieve that but that hope that's the hope of where where it hopefully goes so mm. yeah, yeah yep all right well um yeah thanks perry for those yeah really i'm glad we could could chat about that that really means a lot yeah. to me um uh, i've really been thinking about it a lot this week and and just wanted to chat about it a little bit
1: yeah yeah that, that was great um yeah. and you know obviously we'll put some links to her work in the uh, show notes because i think right. it's really worth checking out yep
2: for sure um all right well we have uh, do we want to do? I know we have a few emails. Do we want to do those, or do we want to save them, or what? Do, what's your thought, Perry? I think we should wait for Simon to yeah
1: act before we do those. Um, yeah, because you know that makes more sense. Uh, are there yeah. any? Uh, I mean, we, <laughs> that guy who emailed a couple of weeks ago saying like, stop talking about photography, only talk about gear, no emotion. <laughs> <laughs> Do we do we need to get back to lenses a little bit um, to to sort of round things out?
2: Uh I, I suppose we could, right? Um, <laughs> a little
1: bit, or any any a- acquisitions or anything you want
2: to talk about? Well, a- actually, okay. So if we want to go back to gear, there is one yeah. there is one email question here that is very gear uh, focused, and it was addressed to me. So maybe we could do that one because we could oh, talk yeah. about it, right? You know the one I'm talking about. It's the one yes, about. Yes, yes. Yeah, okay. So let's do we'll do one email and I have I have the camera in question here in front of me so we can talk about it. So the question is from uh Jermaine and Jermaine asks uh, he says, hello CLP. I recently got a Canon 50mm F1.8 in a trade and was reminded by all the times that Johnny had talked about this lens and the camera he pairs about. He pairs it with the Canon 4SB. So I went and bought my own Canon 4SB2. Normally I shoot a Nikon f90x but i do own an olympus sp so i am accustomed to rangefinders however what baffles me on the canon is the viewfinder switch i haven't quite figured out a workflow that does a good job of us- utilizing this feature my question to johnny then is do you just leave it in one position like 1.5x or do you switch it back and forth as a side point i feel like the tricks and finesse of operation of operation Older gear is is something nobody ever really talks about. Thanks, Jermaine. So what Jermaine's talking about is on the Canon rangefinders, and I'm not sure, I I, I don't know that all of them have this feature, but certainly the Canon 4SB and the 4SB2 have this feature. I have both of those Mm. cameras. And so basically up on um, on the upper left side of the camera, there's a little switch which is located just below the rewind knob and that switch has three settings it has a setting that says f a setting that has says 1x and a setting that says 1.5x so as you turn that uh switch as you can imagine it magnifies the image in the viewfinder um so you basically either have the f which is like the widest, and then it gets progressively tighter. So um, uh, there's the one X and the 1.5 X. So I, I guess, I mean, my understanding is that the, um, I think it's the one, the, is it the F? Is it basically the equivalent of a 50 millimeter uh, viewfinder? Mm-hmm. And the 1.5 X I thought was equivalent of like uh, the 100 millimeter lens and i guess that would make the 1x in the middle i could be wrong about that but it kind of makes no difference to me because i'll tell you i guess how i use them um i i tend to just leave it on the f setting which is the widest setting unless i'm doing something with really critical focus and then i'll move it to the uh 1.5 f position um but generally i'm using it i guess in that uh widest setting um but I, to be honest, I don't use the viewfinder on the camera for framing images. I, even with a 50 millimeter lens, I use an external viewfinder on Barnack style cameras, uh, which I actually much prefer. I, I prefer to mm-hmm. use that that window just for focus, and then use the external viewfinder for uh, framing. Because to me, even the canons, which I think are better than any Barnack style Leica, as far as uh, size of the viewfinder window, um, I still find them too squinty for the most mm-hmm. part. And I I, I much prefer uh, framing with a bright line viewfinder um, always. So I, I love, actually the thing I like, I enjoy most about Barnack style cameras and my favorite are the Canons. The thing that I enjoy most about, uh, that experience is using the external viewfinders. So right. I only use that that for framing that um, that uh, it's not really a diopter. I mean it's a you know magnified view. So but I only use it for focus and I use an external viewfinder for framing. So that's that's how I do it um, in terms of my own personal workflow. Uh, and I'm pretty sure if I pulled up uh, the manual for the 4sB, it would say exactly, what each magnification uh, was equivalent to in terms of focal length, because that's my understanding is basically how you would use that. Um, yeah. So I'd, Perry, I don't know if you have insights on that one. Um, yeah, I, I've had a
1: couple of these cam, Canon rangefinders. finders. Um, well, I, I totally get the external viewfinder thing, because when it comes to barnack style cameras, I don't like the integrated finders because they t- like where the viewfinder and the rangefinder are integrated because they tend to be kind of dim. Yeah. Um, so, like, the, the thing I like about um, cameras like the Leica 3F are the actual framing window is, like, super clear, even though it's kind of small and squinty. Um, but the, the question that I have for you, then, is if you're using the finder just for focus, why would you not keep it in, like, fully zoomed-in mode all the time then?
2: Um, I think because when i pull it up to my eye some it's sort of like that thing that happens when you especially with uh like digital cameras that have a zoom on them if you start with it zoomed all the way in it's like oh, wait like where, am, where am i <laughs> yeah, where yeah. am i here i don't know where i am um so i tend to leave it wider because it's just easier to see the like what i'm observing without the camera to my eye that i want to photograph it's closer to what i want to see right in the viewfinder um so yeah that and and what we're referring to the technical name of this is the magnification control lever because i'm now looking at the uh at the manual um Uh. so that's so yeah i generally i start with it all the way on the widest setting and i only sort of zoom it in if i'm really doing critical focus um but to be to read from the manual, it says the one X position corresponds to the image seen and recorded by any Canon lens with a focal length of 100 millimeters. So oh. the 1.5 setting is 135, and the f setting is uh, 50 millimeters. 50. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah.
1: yeah. So there there are some other um, non barnex style Canon rangefinders like the the Canon L and the you know those ones with the little dial where you can switch the viewfinder magnification yeah right so i I, I remember you know on most of those they have like a 35 a 50 and then like an rf setting which supposedly has a field of view similar to 135 but you're kind of supposed to just use it for precise focusing um but i i haven't heard of many people switching between i think most of the time like you would just keep it at whatever magnification corresponds to like your shooting um, and then only switch it to the maximum magnification if you want like really, really good critical focus.
2: yeah, that's that's exactly how I approach it. yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Um, and and that that
1: second part of the question about tricks and finesse of operating older gear, I, we we can do an entire episode on that because oh, there's so many totally. cool little, yeah, there's just so many cool little tricks yeah. um, and, uh, <laughs> with specific cameras and specific camera lens pairings. Yeah.
3: Um,
1: like, for example, right? Like, on my... Uh, it, it's, it's not that old, but on my Konica Hexar RF, um, there are a few specific lenses that I can operate that camera one hand, uh, one-handed hand, one because the focus tab is, like, just in the perfect position that right. I can basically use my left hand to, like, hold an umbrella if I'm shooting in the rain or, I don't know, protesting. Um, and like use my thumb, uh, use my, not my thumb, my middle finger to move the focus tab, knowing where the kind of zone positions are. Right. And my index <laughs> finger on the, the shutter. And there's like all these weird little things with different cameras. That would be super cool to talk about.
2: Yeah. I mean, I get, I feel like you do a whole episode just on Barnack style cameras and all the, yeah. the quirks. And cause I mean, I have a bunch, that's part of what I love about those cameras is they're, to me in a weird way. They're almost the most intuitive, camera you can ever use and it's also kind of the the most you know archaic in a lot of ways but they're really really simple once you get in the zone with them and understand all those little tricks so yeah that's a that'd be a great conversation as well
1: so so quick question on that because i love RNX style cameras as well but the reason i don't use them very much is because they are so annoying to load (laughs) um do you like do you have a specific method of Loading barnack style cameras. Um, uh, uh, because, yeah, kind of actually. Um, but let me let me tell you what I do first. Because yeah. it might be idiotic. Um, when I when I carry like a like a 3f or something, basically what I do is I have a pair of tiny 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 scissors that I keep in my camera bag. <laughs> um, and I basically will you know do what they tell you to do and just trim the leader, and right. then like shove the thing in with great difficulty sometimes I'll even pre-trim a few liters if I'm shooting quite a That's bit. That's what I do. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cause y- yeah. there are, you know, websites online that tell you to do crazy shit. Like, you know, Ugh. put the shutter on bulb. Yeah. Then, like, open the shutter and stick your fingers into the, uh, uh in, like through the yeah. shutter and like move the film around. Like, like right. or you could just cut the leader and not like stick your finger in the shutter.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that. I, um, me and uh bob matter was in the shop about a week ago and we we had that same little conversation he had a he had a forest he had a 4sb with him and we did that we we kind of did it right there on the spot and we trimmed the leader and you know we we dropped it in and um that's what i do i just carry the leaders pre-trimmed i count yeah. 20 sprocket holes and i i notch them out to, you know up to 20 sprocket holes and I I mean, I can I, – I, I don't know. I'm to a point where I can actually do it while I'm walking. I can just put a roll in and it works, you know. But I, yeah. I think pre, pre-trimming the leaders helps a lot. The other thing that I figured out with the cannons was um, they have these nice take-up spools that have this, like, spring-loaded uh, end on them. So uh-huh. – and the the idea is that it's easier to hold the, um, the roll when you – put it back in the camera and I actually find the opposite to be true. I find that then I'm trying to get the, the spring thing to recatch. So what I do is I'll, I'll put the film on the take up spool, um, lock down the spring loaded bit and then put it into the camera with it, you know, already kind of la- the spring already back in place. And I find that a lot easier than putting it in and then turning the spring. Um, and it just, To me, I feel like you just if you trim the leader and you don't force it and you slide it in real easy, they go in great. And then the only difficult part is, really, to me the hardest part, which is making sure that the um, uh, sprocket holes are falling over the spool, like not in, you know, you don't want the 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 sprocket ring to be in between the perforations you want the perforations on yeah on the wheel which is really hard to see um but i i feel like most of the time if you have dropped the the film in right it just kind of falls on that it does it itself yeah 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 i feel like i i I obsess over that more than it's not it's like it's always right but i just worry it isn't (laughs) right so but but no i yeah i guess pre-trimming to me pre-trimming the leader's makes all the difference That's, and yeah 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 because i
1: don't do that because it forces me to commit that role <laughs> <laughs> to the right. barnack style camera yeah. um and and i'm not i'm never convinced that i'm gonna shoot like multiple roles usually when i take them out it's just for fun and then when i'm shooting seriously it'll be like on an m or something yeah um I, that would make my life a lot easier because like I, I bought a specific pair of like tiny foldable scissors that are no bigger than like maybe two quarters yeah. and I just keep, I carry that around. But then every time I want to change <laughs> roll of film, I have to find a bench and sit there like an idiot kind of right. Like, with a right. tiny <laughs> pair of scissors, like trimming away at the leader. Uh, just trying I think get it in.
2: I, I, you know, it's funny. I had uh, at oh, another time at the, at the shop. So somebody came in and explained to me that, this was very much by design that you were supposed to, when you change the film on your Barnack-style camera, you were supposed to go to a cafe, get a coffee, get a croissant, and you're supposed to sit there and and have a little break and change your film. <laughs> and that completely uh, makes sense to me.
1: But <laughs> didn't com- people didn't like photojournalists shoot wars with Barnack-style cameras? You know, w- w- wasn't wasn't that some of like the original ethos? I don't I don't buy that. <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, I mean, there's a there's a couple of really cool flo- photos floating around of like two barnacks connected at the at the base plate. So when one ran out of film, you'd just flip it over and start shooting the other one. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's that's real. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to see if I can find the photo. I think it was actually a Russian, a photo of a like a, a Soviet uh, wartime photo of a, a, a camera set up that way for someone who was shooting, you know, in a war zone in the Second World War. So, <laughs> fun stuff. That's,
1: well, I I think barnacks are underrated. Uh, the the 3F with a collapsible Elmar um, or Star uh, is the only rangefinder other than the Olympus XA that will just fit in my pocket. And I yeah.
2: Love that. Yeah. I I I think that they're yeah. I think they're brilliant. I think they're in a lot of ways the most intuitive camera you can ever use. Um, not the easiest, but the most intuitive. So. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff. So thanks for the question. That was a that was a good one. Um, and we'll do the we'll do the other questions later. Oh, I did have one other thing I want to mention, and this was a because I received it in a private message from, uh, Nigel Cliff um Mm -hmm. after the what was the question episode uh and and nigel said as a clarification he says johnny when i mentioned the big boys i was meaning is there anything amongst the lesser lights such as tamron sigma chinon yishika etc so that was uh nigel's clarification of the question he was asking what was the question (laughs) i
1: don't i don't remember i don't think that makes it easier (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> oh man so uh yeah we miss you Simon <laughs> yeah I, uh, hope everything's okay and you know we wish you were here yeah so uh, I,
1: I guess time wise um we need this is where Simon would jump in and say we should start winding things down yeah we
2: should start winding things down Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I do want to talk quickly
1: about one lens because I did I did even though I was on vacation, I managed to get a new acquisition. Ah, um, okay. Well, sort of. So before I, I left on vacation, um, there's actually a member of the Photography of Classic Lenses uh, Facebook group who uh, I got in touch with. And he, he sold me this lens um, on a private sale. So it's uh, a lens I've been going after for a while um, because, you know, I, it's, it's no secret that I enjoy obscure Japanese LTM lenses. Um, and it's the top core 35mm f2.8 uh, in LTM mount. Now, the, the RE Auto version of this lens is, is highly, um, it, it, has, it has a stellar reputation. But it's very, very uh, uncommon to see the LTM version. It's the only 35mm lens top core made. And I, I, I only bought it because, like, this is pure gas. There's no reason for me to buy this lens. It has the same optical design as the Leica Summeron. Um, but the, uh, you know, I've been lusting after this stupid LTM Biogon for so long. And they're, they're so expensive. Uh, the ones in Hong Kong, every time I go and try one, I don't like them because they feel like Jupiter, Jupiter 12. And so I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to get this one because... It's not a biogon optically, but it's going to satisfy that gas for like a super cool (laughs) 35 millimeter f2.8 lens in LTM because I sold my Canon. And uh, yeah, I mean, I just got it the day I got back. It's sitting on my M6 right now and uh, it's tiny. Yeah. It's so, so, so small. I haven't had a chance to um, like shoot with it yet because, again, I just got it, but it, there's two things that are really like neat about this lens. Um, I'm hoping that it'll, it'll have that sort of traditional top core pop. But the two things that really jump out at me are like, number one, the barrel of the lens, like it's tiny, but it looks a lot like a contact. Uh, it looks weirdly similar to a contact RF lens. Um, right. Cause like when you turn the focus ring, there's like two moving pieces that move back and forth independently. Um, which is much more similar to like the 35 Biogon and contact RF mount because most most of like these LTM uh, lenses, there's just like one moving piece, and so when you turn the the focus tab or whatever, it uh, it just moves like the the barrel back and forth right at the same yeah. time. Um, but then, then secondly, like the filter threads are really weird on this lens because there's a there's a 40.5 millimeter thread on the outside which also serves as an aperture ring. Uh, and then like, which is pretty standard for top core LTM lenses. So then there's a 34 millimeter thread on the inside, which I, I'm not really sure what that's for, but if you put a filter on the, the 40.5 thread, the inner 34 thread will hit the glass. And so if you screw the filter in too tightly, like you can't turn the aperture ring properly. So I, I don't know if there's a specific hood design for this or like I pulled up an image and showed it to you earlier that they seem to yeah. use a specific type of filter adapter. Cause like right. this was part of the design of this lens that was just like baffling me. Um, but otherwise yeah. it's beautiful yeah. and tiny.
2: Right. And, and yeah, you said that picture and, um, it, and I recognize that right away because that it's a series six adapter which is really common for lenses from that era that you the way you would put a filter on them is you would put a series six adapter and then you would put the right size filter on there, and then you would put either the retaining ring in front of the filter or you'd put a lens hood on to serve as a retaining ring and the lens hood. Um, and it makes perfect sense when you look at it that way because then the filter is not going to hit the you know the that front part of the lens. Um, and it works perfectly. So yeah, that's a, that's a perfect solution for a lens like that is, um, a series six adapter that you can then drop any filter into that adapter that you want to use. It's a sort of an elegant solution that kind of disappeared. Uh, I would say in the SLR era when the, all the manufacturers, you know, they tended to want to stick with one filter ring size so that if you bought a bunch of lenses from, say, Nikon, they were all going to be, you know, fifty-two millimeter or something like that, or fifty-five or whatever. Um, so that kind of went by the wayside, and uh, the series adapter system uh, was no longer quite as popular. But it, it's really brilliant for older stuff, um, and it's great for SL for uh, uh, rangefinder lenses for sure. So,
1: so how does that how does that work? Because the only lens I have with a series style filter is the 40 semicron. Yeah. Um, so is there? But that one, like you drop the filter into the middle and then the hood screws over the top. Right. But yeah. This one, it sounds like there's like an adapter.
2: No, it's the same thing. Um, you're basically you're the filter holder. Or they they call them an adapter because it's adapting the f- threads on the lens to series six filter size, which is okay. a standard size. So that's why they get called adapters, but they're really not.
1: Adapters oh.
2: per se, they're just filter holders.
1: Um, oh, so are you and, dropping the filter in the gap between the two threads?
2: Yeah, well, you're dropping it in the in the in the space. Um, no, it's sitting it's sitting in the ring itself. There's a a, a space right. for the filter to sit in there, and then you just either screw the hood up on top of that, or you screw a retaining ring on the front of that, and then the filter right, is oh, held okay. in. Yeah, right. So. Um, yeah, I mean that's that's all it is. Is it's a way to attach the filters to the lens. But the idea is each filter, instead of each filter being individually threaded, the filter has no threads. It's just a piece of glass with you know a metal ring around it, um, or sometimes they don't even have that. Sometimes it's just a piece of glass, um, and then you just drop that into the holder. So it's really a whole. It's a filter holder. Um, more than an adapter, but they get called adapters because the, technically they are adapting right, to right. the Series Six filters. And so it's the same thing, Perry. Um, so oh, if okay. you can, so the, the, the yeah.
1: adapter is just holding the filter in place, which right. is otherwise a free-moving piece of glass.
2: Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay,
1: gotcha.
2: yeah. So oh, yeah, man. if if you can just find a um uh 40.5 to Series Six adapter, then you're off to the races.
1: Oh that's gonna be that's gonna be annoying to find locally, but I, I'm isn't there do tons that. Of
2: stuff like that there? I would think there'd be uh the,
1: the series adapters are they're really hard to find. Like filters really? here yeah, vintage filters here are uh they're much easier to find for SLR lenses than in those kinds of sizes. Okay. Like the the, the forty Semicron for example, finding the series five point five filter for that is yeah. like nigh on impossible if it's not coming with the lens already.
2: Wow. Okay. Well, like, I got find I loads. Yeah. I've got loads of that stuff in the shop. <laughs> so All maybe right. I'll have to maybe I'll have to get you a care package together, Perry.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're gonna. I gotta find an excuse to to head over to Chicago. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Those things are not easy to find here in Hong Kong.
2: Wow. That's uh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. Very interesting. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, congrats. Congr- Congrats on the lens. I mean, that's um, it's a great lens, and I, I'm familiar with it in person only because Robbie Robbie J got one a few weeks ago, and he brought it in, and we we were messing around with it. So it's it's a really really nice lens, and um, I gotta imagine you're gonna love it. And yeah, it it really reminded me of uh, the uh, the Zeiss thirty five three point five planar for the hmm. contacts it it's it's very it's really similar in terms of looks and size and weight so
1: yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's really interesting because there aren't that many like that in ltm but the thing the thing that i'm struggling with right now um is like i, I do have a screw-in filter on it i just don't screw it in all the way the thing i'm struggling with it right now is what camera to put it on
0: yeah I, i've yeah.
1: got it on my m6 right now um i think i like it better on my m2 but for a really stupid reason that i mentioned earlier um and and it's like it's a silver lens and it doesn't come in black so i'm much more comfortable using it on my m6 but like i do have that strange i I don't know why i don't like putting silver lenses on black cameras like (laughs) it it just looks so much better on a silver camera like the canon 50 1.5 ltm it's beautiful on the m2 i think it looks stupid on my m6 (laughs) <laughs> I would use it on my M2 way more.
2: Uh, I can understand that. There's something to that. Really? That makes sense. Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of the, the Voigtlander, super wides, the wide angle lenses, and I like. I don't ever use my 21 millimeter Voigtlander LTM on a, Canon rangefinder. It just wouldn't look right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, I rather, I'd rather. Yeah, but I get it. I get what you mean about things not looking right. But yeah, the color thing. You just don't like that panda look. Or that zebra look. or The, re- the reverse look. I- I'm totally fine with a black lens on a silver camera. I think
1: that's totally fine. <laughs> just when you put a silver lens on a black camera, it looks really weird to me. Whether it's digital, old film camera, rangefinder, SLR. It's just like, yeah, there's something my brain just looks at it and goes, eh, no, 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 no. That's it's not like right. wearing,
2: wearing shorts with... Black socks versus white socks, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. Probably- okay. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. It makes sense to me. I feel yep. you, Perry. Good. 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 Uh, all right. Well, with that, should we uh, should we wrap it up then? Get this. Yes. Get, get this audio over to Simon so he can still because he Simon, uh, in theory, could hear us. He just couldn't do the recording, um, and his connection was really bad because he was on his his phone. So uh, we he he Simon's still going to be working on this today. So we're going to get this audio uh, over to Simon so he can do his engineering magic. Um, so yeah, I guess we should we should go ahead and wrap up. Um, Perry, do you want to tell us where we can find you? Uh,
1: yeah, on Instagram, Flickr, uh, and my website. They're all just p e r r y g e and dot com for the website
2: all right and you can find uh me at um photography on instagram you can find me at uh, central camera company in chicago every day except for sunday and monday um and please stop in and say hello the best part of my day when people do that that would be great and i guess we should talk about where we can where simon can be found right um I've well, heard you this enough this? times. We should know that it, right. I, he's Simon Four somewhere, and, and
1: it's Fuzzy
2: on it's eBay. Fuzzy on yeah, on 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 eBay, and he has um some Italian adapters. No, he has adapters that have an Italian name, sort of some that he sells. Uh, okay,
1: Simon Forster Photographic. Yeah. That um, one. UK, And I think that's an yeah. Instagram tag as well. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Okay.
2: yeah. Um Yeah. So there's that. And then you can you can keep up with the the podcast obviously at our home, which is Classic Lenses Podcast at uh at, well, classic lenses podcast And you can email us at classic lenses podcast at gmail.com. Um, and of course on Instagram, be sure to check out uh best vintage lens. Where a friend of me of the show, Ricardo, posts the amazing uh, notes and critique from each episode, which we love and are better than the show itself. So you definitely want to check those out as well. Um, any other parting words, Perry?
1: Uh, no, I think this is where Simon would just say, uh, well, wait, do we have anyone to thank or any shout out? Um,
2: I don't have any this week
1: personally. Me neither. I, I don't know if we have any, like, coffee
2: donations or anything. To Well, if we oh,
1: do, yeah. we'll, we'll read them out next week.
2: Yeah, if we do, we'll read them out next week. Simon will Simon will read them out next week. So, we'll get to the coffee donations there. But, yeah, thank you for the coffee donations. Thank you for the emails. Um, we we do greatly appreciate them. Um, so, I guess we'll sign off and we will... We'll, uh, so s- where Simon we- would say, hope you've enjoyed the show and... Yes. If you Be can. like Carl, you like Carl. All right, take care, all. Thanks, Bye-bye.
1: bye bye. Bye.